Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Caribbean Studies podcast. I am your host today, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm in dialogue with Dr. Chris Bonji. He is full professor in the Department of English at Queen's University in Kingston. We are here to discuss his book, The Colonial System Unveiled by Baron de Vette, which he has edited and translated. It is published by Liverpool University Press 2014. Chris, thank you for your time today. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I went to graduate school, Stanford University, um, supervised by Mary Louise Pratt, uh, sort of a foundational figure in post-colonial studies, colonial discourse analysis, uh, and taught in the States for uh, for some time, and then came to uh, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario in 2002, and I've been teaching... Uh, teaching there ever since. Um, yeah. What inspired you to prepare this book? Uh, well, um, I had become uh, interested. Uh, it came out in 2014, um, and uh, I had been uh, interested in the figure of Baron de Vate for uh, a little over a decade uh, at that uh, point. Uh, some of my work in the 1990s uh, had been devoted to uh, French Romantic-era writers, notably uh, Victor Hugo, uh, who wrote, a, when he was very young, wrote a novel about the Haitian Revolution called Bouc Jargal. That came out in 1826. Um, and that's sort of where my interest in uh, Haitian history, Haitian literature kind of, uh, kind of began. Um, and, you know, as I looked more into the, uh, into the area, uh, you know, became acquainted with, uh, not just with sort of the French side of things, uh, but the existence of a kind of a rich uh, uh, Haitian literary culture, uh, you know, starting from the 1790s on through independence in 1804. Um, and uh, I kind of became interested uh, in some of the, the writers that, uh, the Vic- Hugo, that Victor Hugo, as it were, wasn't influenced by, because Hugo's Book Jargal uh, is very much a colonial novel. Uh, it's saturated with sort of colonial biases 
um, intertextual sort of dependency uh, on, you know, colonial writers who were sort of invested in the preservation of, uh, of Saint-Domingue as a French colony and uh, who were sort of uh, appalled by the idea of uh, Haitian uh, independence. So um, started to get interested in the other side of things, uh, as it were. Um, and uh, it doesn't take long if you're looking into early Haitian literature before you come across this character, uh, the Baron de Vaté, uh, who was the, the secretary uh, for King Henri Christophe uh, of Haiti, uh, and who published uh, a, a great many books, 11 to be exact, uh, in the 1810s. Uh, um, and uh, so I started to, to think about him both as historical figure uh, and as a, a kind of a fictional figure. Uh, because um, there are a lot of plays, um, novels also, but mostly plays uh, out there about King Christophe of Haiti. Um, some of them are very uh, notable, authored by the likes of uh, Derek Walcott, uh, Aimé Césaire, tragedies about King Christophe uh, and post-independence uh, uh, Haiti. And some of these plays actually represent Vate. Vate is a character. Uh, in some of these plays. And I think in 2005 or so, thereabouts, uh, uh, I wrote an article about the representations of Vate, uh, mostly in Walcott's uh, Haitian plays, the so-called Haitian uh, trilogy. Um, but I also, you know, uh, in order to do that, uh, I had to confront the real Vate, not the fictional Vate, uh, and kind of gain some sense of what it was he was writing you know, how it was that he became the, the secretary of uh, King Henri Christophe. Um, uh, so um, I became very, uh, very well acquainted with his uh, work. That's like 20 years ago. Back then, you know, in order to get Vate's uh, work, in order to examine it, to study it, you actually had to go places. You had to go to libraries. Uh, uh, I had to go to the British Library. I think that's where um, I encountered uh, probably most of his, uh, most of his text for the first time. Uh, you know, by the late, by 2010 or so, everything was digitalized uh, and anybody could have access to uh, uh, to the works of uh, Vate. But, you know, one has to think back to like 20 years ago, it was actually still really hard to uh, to get a hold of his uh, his text, especially his text in, in French, uh, because many of them, or several of them at least, uh, had been translated in the 1810s, 1820s uh, into uh, uh, into English and were a little more readily available uh, than the French originals. So, um, yeah, does that kind of answer the question? Yes, very much. Okay. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does this book convey? Uh, well, um, in terms of the themes, uh, you know, part of what's like so amazing about uh, about Vate's work, and especially the, the colonial system unveiled, uh, is that uh, their contents remarkably anticipate so many of the central themes and concerns of 20th century anti-colonial thought. You know, people like Aimé Césaire, negritude, uh, people like Franz Fanon, uh, you know, anti-colonial uh, resistance, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre uh, as well, uh, who wrote a book, uh, wrote an article, sorry, called uh, uh, Colonialism as a System. <laughs> you know, you only have to hear the title, Colonialism as a System, uh, to think, hey, is there some kind of connection with uh, Vate's uh, 1814 book, uh, The uh, Colonial System uh, Unveiled? So yeah, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, 
questions of sovereignty, black sovereignty, as well as Haitian uh, sovereignty. Uh, these are the main themes uh, of, uh, of, of Vate's work and of this work in particular. Um, and as I say, they, they presciently uh, anticipate uh, a, a lot of uh, anti-colonial thinking uh, in the 20th century, right? Just as Haiti, uh, as a kind of independent post-colonial state in 1804, um, that's that's kind of emancipated itself uh, from the colonial French yoke, right? Uh, anticipates uh, the decolonization movements uh, uh, in Africa and the Caribbean and elsewhere uh, in the 20th uh, century. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Uh, well, I'd like them to uh, uh, to get a sense of, well, the message, uh, just to return to the whole question of the, the message of, of this particular text. Colonialism uh, is a system uh, which affects everyone, colonizers and colonized uh, alike. That's part of what's important about uh, Vate's book is just this systemic view uh, uh, on uh, colonialism. Um, as he put it uh, in his last book uh, from 1819, uh, the foundations of the colonial system rest on slavery and color prejudices with a view to preserving the supremacy of whiteness, which the ex-colonists guard so jealously. Um, there's a whole system in place, Bate's arguing, uh, for preserving the supremacy uh, of whiteness. Uh, and so his analysis of the colonial system, uh, you know, it can be thought about usefully, uh, I think, uh, in terms of, uh, of, of our own discussions today uh, about something called structural racism, right? Uh, the idea that racism isn't simply like a kind of an individual thing. Uh, there are a lot of bad apples out there, but there are a lot of good apples, uh, right? But that, in fact, you know, as it were, uh, we're all apples. Uh, we're all part of the system. Um, and uh, we're all rotten apples at, 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 at some level, right? Uh, that's what structural racism, you know, uh, uh, an understanding of structural racism uh, entails, uh, a, a kind of uh, a collective uh, guilt, uh, a collective uh, sort of investment uh, in preserving the supremacy of whiteness, no matter how, if you're white, no matter how anti-racist uh, you are, you're still part uh, of that uh, of that system, and so Vate's uh, you know kind of analysis of the colonial system uh, way back in you know the 1810s I think does have a lot to tell us about uh, you know the workings of structural racism and also of course uh, the kind of the negative reactions on the part of some people to the very idea of structural racism the very idea that there's a structure out there uh, uh, that's uh, you know. Uh, that's preserving the supremacy of whiteness, um, regardless of you know how we may think we 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 feel uh, about about whiteness. Yeah. Can you tell us about the authors of the supplementary essays in this volume? Can you say more about who they are and what their essays say? Uh, yeah, I, I could, but I think I'll I, I think I'll address your um, uh, 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 in a little more depth your uh, your your question about uh, what I'd like listeners to get out of the sure. uh, dialogue. Um, sure. And that would be um, uh, a number of things. Uh, some sense of the world historical importance of the Haitian Revolution, first and foremost, uh, an event that 
um, exceeded the limits of the American and French Revolution in its, to quote the words of the philosopher Peter Hallward, in its affirmation of the natural inalienable, inalienable rights of all human beings, right? Or, or to quote uh, one of the contributors to my edition, Nick Nesbitt, uh, the Haitian Revolution, uh, a sense of it as the most accomplished political event of the Age of Enlightenment. Let's remember that the Haitian Revolution, uh, you know, went beyond the French, the American revolutions uh, uh, in, 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 in collapsing uh, racial inequality, uh, right? Uh, uh, whereas the American Revolution obviously was, you know, committed uh, to the maintenance of uh, slavery. And the French Revolution uh, took the American Revolution one step further, uh, but still, you know, in its initial stages, uh, maintained slavery, maintained inequality, uh, on the grounds of race, uh, the Haitian Revolution uh, was fought uh, uh, against uh, against those sorts of inequalities in the name of the equality of everyone, regardless of uh, color. So I'd also like people to take away sort of an interest in post-independence uh, Haiti, uh, which doesn't get talked about as much as the Haitian Revolution itself. Uh, more specifically, um, I'd like uh, uh, I'd like your listeners. Uh, to to sort of have a little bit more awareness of Vate himself, the richness of his uh, anti-colonial vision, which, to quote from the preface uh, to my book, uh, is nowhere more evident than in, in his astonishingly prescient invocation of a decolonizing world in which, in his words, and this is fantastic, remember, this is written, these words are written in 1816, 500 million black, yellow, and brown men spread across the surface of the globe are claiming the rights and privileges that they received from the author of nature. That's just an amazing, you know, uh, sort of vision to have uh, in 1816. And finally, an appreciation of this particular book of his, uh, which I've argued can be legitimately considered the first sy systemic critique uh, of colonialism ever written, certainly from the perspective uh, of a colonized subject. Um, and, uh, it's generally acknowledged, I think, now to be his most important work. It's also his first uh, major work. So, okay, onward. <laughs> uh, can you tell us about the authors of the supplementary essays in this volume? Can you say more yeah. about who they are and what their essays say? Sure. When I put together, the, uh, or when I came up with the idea of this uh, edition, uh, critical edition and translation of, of Vate, which was to some extent modeled uh, on an earlier translation critical edition of mine of Victor Hugo's uh, Book Jargal, uh, the novel about the Haitian Revolution. I mentioned it uh, earlier. Um, I thought I wanted to make it a more kind of a collective uh, venture. Uh, and so I enlisted uh, the contributions uh, from uh, some um, scholars uh, who had begun to publish uh, work on Vate and who continue uh, to publish uh, work on uh, Vate and post-independence Haiti um, and uh, anti-colonial uh, critique. Uh, so um, the three the three authors are Marlena Doubt, uh, uh, who later in 2017 uh, published an entire monograph uh, on Vate, which includes a version of the chapter uh, in my 2014 edition uh, of Vate's colonial system unveiled. Uh, and who reads him as a foundational figure in a philosophical movement of Black Atlantic humanism, right? 
So uh, Doubt's book is, is Marlena's book is, is one of the places, one of the starting points for the study of uh, Vate. Uh, also Doris Garraway, uh, who uh, has uh, been working for, for quite some time now uh, on a book called uh, Liberty's Majesty about, uh, uh, it's gonna be like fantastic analysis of uh, uh, Christophian, the Christophian world. Um, and uh, and uh, she contributed an article uh, uh, in which she she very interestingly talks about Vate's uh, kind of almost paradoxical relation to abolitionist discourse, uh, his need to sort of rely on it uh, in terms of his European audience, but his need also to kind of go beyond it uh, and all the constraints uh, uh, upon black subjects uh, that abolitionist discourse. That sort of imposes. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, Nick Nesbitt contributed uh, an afterword uh, that was uh, eventually to be included uh, in his book, uh, Caribbean Critique, uh, where he provides some philosophical context for, uh, for what Vate, uh, Vate was doing uh, in colonial system uh, unveiled. Yeah. Can you explain and interpret the picture on the front cover of this book? Okay, well, that's a good starting point. Um, it's a little bit hard to uh, to talk about a a, 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 a picture without mm -hmm. showing it. Of course, yes. So I, I don't know how successful this would be uh, uh, in a podcast, but um, it's a great picture, um, and uh, it is um, taken from my friend uh, uh, Leah Gordon's Carnival series of photographs, which she's been. Uh, uh, she's been doing, you know, ever since like the mid '90s. Uh, she's been going to Haiti, specifically Jacmel, uh, to the south, uh, doing photographs, uh, uh, taking oral testimony uh, from people, participants in the Jacmel uh, Carnival. Um, and I actually used one of her images, maybe her most uh, famous uh, uh, image, uh, the rope throwers, uh, uh, for the cover of my uh, my Victor Hugo translation critical edition um and i thought it would be kind of nice to you know to uh, uh to to use another one of her images uh for for this this book uh it's hard to describe but it's a it's a carnival it's called phantom phantom uh and uh it's a uh, a, a carnival figure who is uh sort of dressed in uh some kind of white robe it's a figure of whiteness figure of ghostliness uh, and yet there's clearly something uh, lurking uh, under uh, underneath it. Um, and it seems to be a kind of a weapon uh, even that's emerging uh, uh, from the, the sort of the white robes with which this, uh, this figure uh, is uh, covered. And, and, and to my mind, you know, it raises the themes of, uh, of phantom, right? Of, of, of ghostliness, uh, of a kind of, uh, unsettling um, reemergence of the past, uh, which is one of the themes of uh, of, of Vate's book, uh, trying to kind of uh, bring back to life uh, the ghosts uh, of the of of the ancestors, those uh, enslaved uh, uh, residents of colonial Saint Domingue uh, who were tortured and slaughtered uh, by the the French colonizers. Uh, the French uh, settlers, um, and uh, yeah, and it's also a kind of a reflection on whiteness, um, 
what happens uh, when the black subject dons the robes of whiteness, uh, as it were, which is a kind of an interesting question uh, when uh, black Haitian writers uh, in the post-independence era uh, take pen uh, to paper. There's a kind of complicity, uh, a kind of almost guilty complicity uh, with, uh, with whiteness, specifically with white writing, uh, with all those, those, those words, all those books and texts that they've, they've had to, to, to read uh, in order to, to, to properly educate themselves. Uh, you know, uh, and to assume uh, the identity of an author, the author of a, a published uh, uh, book. So I think it's uh, it's very interesting, but um, it is a, a kind of potentially problematic uh, image. Uh, and indeed, as I was uh, sort of, I, I knew you were going to be asking a version of this question, uh, it recalled to me uh, a kind of cautionary uh, email that was sent to me by, by one of my collaborators. Um, and uh, I, I sort of I sort of retrieved it from the uh, the archive, uh, my own personal archive, uh, and I actually I think it's worth reading out here because um, it does raise the the question, the essential question, really, uh, of of what of the uses that that we whoever we are uh, make uh, of a writer like Vate, or the uses that 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 we're making uh, of, uh, of 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 Haiti uh, more broadly, right? Uh, this is a question that that applies to everyone who turns uh, to this topic, but you know maybe particularly uh, to uh, to people in the the, the Euro American Academy uh, who are becoming like myself, uh, who are becoming you know increasingly sort of fascinated by and insistent upon the importance of the Haitian Revolution uh, and the aftermath of uh, of Haitian uh, independence. You know, who are we to? To, 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 to be talking about, to be writing about uh, uh, these uh, things? Is there a sense in which, you know, we're kind of doomed uh, to some sort of exotic relation uh, to the very, you know, object of study that we're trying uh, to, uh, to valorize? Uh, and I think, you know, this email comment kind of raises that in relation to the cover uh, in a way that I think is very interesting. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just... Read it since I've retrieved sure, it. Please, please, thank yeah. you. Um, the cover art. Uh, I recognize the style from the image on your translation of, of Bougjargal. Uh, although I'm not familiar with the artist or the figure and symbolism evoked in the photograph, it is clearly a highly provocative image. The naive viewer, such as myself, although I say she's not a naive viewer, might see in it some sort of reference to the notion of the veil. However, I would be careful about using such a provocative image, which has Africanist and or primitivist connotations. It's a photograph of, of somebody at Carnival. Right? In some respects, the image brings out an element of Haitian culture that is at odds with what Vate was trying to espouse, civilization, international recognition, universality, Christianity, enlightenment, etc. And even if one sees in Vate an oppositional discourse that is akin to the radical alterity of voodoo or carnival, the image evokes an idea of Haiti that some Haitians today might find unrepresentative when taken out of context. More to the point, given that this collection is originating in the West and consists entirely of North American contributors, you might not want to post on the cover what may be read as an exoticizing image. Um, yeah, so um, so I, I, take that, uh, I take that critique that possibility of that critique uh, very seriously uh, and yet nonetheless I, I'm like entirely committed to that that image um, 
notwithstanding or even maybe precisely because uh, it can be read uh, in any number of ways, which include, uh, but is not limited to, uh, the sort of exoticizing uh, uh, um, interpretation that uh, that my collaborator uh, sort of suggested uh, might be a danger. Uh, yeah, and I, I I do want to put in uh, a, a little bit of an advertisement for uh, Leah Gordon's uh, work as a photographer and as a filmmaker uh, in general. Uh, she just came out with a very very important uh, film called Carnival: A People's History of Haiti uh, in six uh, uh, in six chapters, uh, based in part you know on on her on her work, uh, based in large part on her work in the uh, with the Jacmel Carnival for uh, uh, for for over thirty years. Uh, now, uh, and um, her series of photographs, kind of out from which the, the cover uh, image is, is taken, uh, was published uh, in book form uh, in 2010. And there's a recent sec expanded second edition that, that came out in 2021. Leah Gordon, uh, uh, highly recommend uh, uh, checking her out uh, as a, a kind of... Uh, um, an important contributor to our understanding of uh, of Haitian carnival uh, and uh, um, and visual culture, especially uh, in Haiti. Can you describe the May 1814 Treaty of Paris for listeners who are beginners in Haitian history and French history? Can you tell us about the legacy of this treaty? Um, yeah. So 1814, um, that's the year that Vate's colonial system unveiled is published. Uh, and, you know, it's hugely important understand what's going on in 1814 colonial system unveiled as all of these big themes that still resonate you know with us today anti-colonialism anti-racism questions of sovereignty uh but uh all of those themes are are tied also to very particular historical uh circumstances so it's a book that would not have been written in its in in, in the form that it took uh were it not for you know what was happening uh, at the time in 1814. So what was happening? Well, um, uh, Napoleon had just been defeated uh, earlier that year, 2014. Uh, he'd abdicated. Uh, he'd gone off to Elba, uh, and the French monarchy had been uh, restored, uh, led by uh, Louis XVIII. And um, European powers, you know, were trying to figure out what to do, uh, you know, with this new uh, situation, hence the, the the need for 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 treaties, um, sorting out you know what would be the boundaries of France um, and all of that. Uh, among the things that were addressed uh, in these uh, in these negotiations uh, as part of the Treaty of Paris uh, and then the subsequent Congress of Vienna uh, was the fate of the slave trade. Um, and uh, the slave trade, the European powers agreed upon the abolition of the slave trade, 1814. They gave the French, and only the French, a kind of a five-year uh, grace period. You can keep the slave trade for another five years, but but after that, um, you know, abolition of the slave trade. So that's one of the things that uh, Vate talks about, you know, right at the uh, at the start of his uh, book. However. Um, 1814, the restoration of the French monarchy, uh, King Henri Christophe, Vate, everybody in Haiti had some hope uh, that uh, this was going to lead to a kind of new and improved relation with the former colonial power, France, uh, and that it would eventuate in the official recognition 
of Haiti uh, as an independent country. Well, it turned out nothing of the sort uh, was going to happen uh, in 1814. Louis XVIII uh, named as his foreign minister uh, uh, an old former colonist uh, by the name of Pierre-Victor Malouet. Uh, and Malouet was hell-bent on uh, restoring French rule uh, in Saint-Domingue. That was his sort of obsession. Uh, and back in the 1780s, Malouet had been a kind of reformer. Uh, he sort of saw that there were some problems with the uh, colonial slavery uh, and that they, they needed to be addressed. You know, there were sort of vicious masters who needed to be controlled. Maybe even the word slavery uh, should be abolished, he, 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 he mused, uh, and we could start calling them serfs or uh, some such thing. However, Malouet uh, grew increasingly sort of um, reactionary uh, from the 1780s on to 1814. Uh, and um, yeah, as I say, hell-bent on uh, recolonizing uh, what he persisted in calling the colony of Saint-Domingue as opposed to the independent nation of uh, Haiti. Um, and uh, so military plans were, were started to, uh, you know, what, what would it take uh, to, uh, to, to, to reconquer uh, Saint-Domingue? Uh, and Malouet's first step was to send out some spies uh, uh, to, to Haiti um, to, uh, to kind of negotiate, but not really negotiate, to sort of impose terms uh, on uh, Henri Christophe, uh, as well as the leader of the other Haiti. And here's something we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, Alexandre Pétion, uh, president of the Republic of, of Haiti to the south. Haiti was a divided country uh, in 1814. Uh, it came to independence in 1804, 1st of January, 1804, the Declaration of Haitian Independence. By October 1806, uh, the country uh, had broken into two, split into two for a variety of reasons uh, we don't really need to get into uh, here. It would take us too far, uh, too far afield and too much time. Pétion uh, uh, was the leader of the South, the Southern Republic, at least in name. It was basically a, a dictatorship led by uh, Pétion. Uh, and Henri Christophe uh, was uh, the leader of the North. Um, in 1811, uh, Christophe uh, sort of named himself or transformed himself into King Christophe. Uh, Haiti was transformed in 1811 into a monarchy. Um, yeah. So there's the situation, 1814. The French spies, agents come to Haiti uh, and they sort of negotiate with Pétion uh, and Christophe. Um, and then it becomes clear that they have a secret agenda. Secret papers are found describing Malouet and Louis XVIII's agenda which is to restore slavery. Once that happens, uh, everybody in the South and the North is up in arms uh, and they, you know, there has to, and, and, and fearful, fearful uh, that the invasion of 1802, uh, which brought Toussaint Louverture's sort of rule to, a, to, to an end, uh, uh, would sort of repeat itself, right? So that's the situation of urgency uh, in which Vate is writing colonial system uh, unveiled, all right? There's a sense that uh, um, you know, that the French are going to attack uh, and that uh, that uh, that there needs to be not merely military responses, but discursive responses uh, to uh, to France. Discursive responses, uh, not necessarily addressed just to France, 
uh, uh, but to the world, the 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 the, the wide world, uh, uh, Britain notably, uh, but also other uh, countries who who might look a little bit less favorably uh, on the French, like Russia. Um, uh, the idea that uh, getting these books out, publishing these books uh, in defense of Haitian sovereignty, uh, uh, vindicating Black identity, um, et cetera, uh, would be helpful to, uh, to Haitians uh, as they geared up to defending their uh, country. Can you... Oh, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Oh, uh, can you comment on the reception history of translations into English of Vate's writings? Can you comment on their response in the United States and Great Britain? Uh, yeah, and that's part of the, uh, the whole, uh, what I was just talking about in terms of uh, the desire of uh, Haitians, both the South and the North, but especially in the Northern Kingdom, uh, to, to get their message out, uh, not just to the Haitians themselves or to the French, uh, but to the whole wide uh, world. Uh, and so that involved a kind of concerted uh, um, media strategy uh, that uh, that was directed primarily to the Anglo-American uh, uh, world. Uh, getting these texts, uh, not just by Vate, but by a variety of, of Christophian uh, secretaries like the Count of Limonade, uh, Chevalier Prezot, uh, etc. There were a great number of, of, of these people who wrote for uh, uh, Christophe in defense of Haitian sovereignty and, and kind of anti-colonial, anti-racist uh, sort of way, uh, to get these publications uh, out to a sympathetic audience, both in the United States uh, and especially uh, in Britain. And of course, that involved also getting them translated from, uh, uh, from French uh, into English uh, for a wider dissemination uh, of their uh, messages. Uh, and uh, Vate's three sort of major uh, works, leaving colonial system unveiled aside, uh, were rapidly translated uh, into uh, English uh, between 1817 and 1823. And so his work was very widely uh, disseminated across the Atlantic world uh, in both the States uh, and uh, uh, Britain. Colonial system unveiled uh, was never translated at the time. Uh, the whole media campaign uh, hadn't really started up uh, uh, in earnest at the time it came out. Um, and so that was another of the reasons why I, I felt compelled to uh, justified uh, in uh, in bringing this work into English because of all of Vate's other, uh, you know, made, what I call major works uh, were available uh, in translation, 19th century translations to be sure, but, you know, decent enough translations uh, what some people look upon as his most important work, however, uh, remained available only in French. So, you know, Vate ha had a, a surprisingly wide uh, and uh, and positive uh, reception across the Anglo-American world. Uh, and my collaborator Marlena Doubt uh, has uh, has examined that uh, quite uh, uh, quite comprehensively um, in her uh, uh, both in the chapter. Uh, uh, that's included in, uh, in in my book, uh, but also in her own monograph uh, on uh, Vate. Uh, Vate was an inspiration both to sort of British and American white abolitionists as an example of what, you know, black folk could do when they were quote unquote civilized, 
but also, uh, and more, much more interestingly, uh, an inspiration to, uh, uh, to African-American writers, uh, uh, the emergent, you know, kind of subfield of uh, uh, African-American print culture uh, in, the, um, in the early 19th century. Uh, excerpts from Vate were translated, for instance, uh, in I think the first African-American journal, uh, Freedom's Journal, uh, in the late 1820s. Right from the start, he was a kind of a point of reference uh, for uh, African-Americans who were beginning to kind of think about, uh, think in a kind of uh, critical philosophical way uh, about how, you know, racism and colonialism uh, uh, worked. Uh, in in the United States and elsewhere, right? After the Civil War, he kind of uh, uh, he sort of there's there's much less uh, uh, talk uh, about uh, Vate. The American Civil War uh, seems to kind of bring to a close that sort of first phase of uh, of, of, of Vate's uh, reception uh, in Anglo uh, America. As for I think you asked also about like France. Um, yeah, that was going to be the next thing I asked. How has he been remembered in 20th and 21st century France? And how has he been remembered in 20th and 21st century Haiti? Yeah, and um, Vate is is simply not as visible uh, in, in, in French, be it in France or in Haiti, uh, as he is in English. Uh, it's a kind of irony, really. Uh, from the 1810s onward, uh, there's a sense in which uh, he's been as much an Anglo-American writer uh, as he has been uh, a writer, a French writer or a Haitian writer. Um, uh, very little reception in, in France. There's a few positive articles uh, that, that come out early on, uh, but you can't make too much of, uh, of, of, of a few positive articles. Uh, generally, uh, accounts of, uh, of, of Vate and of, of Haitian literary cultural in general in France in the 19th century are, are very dismissive, and that dismissiveness extends uh, uh, well into the 20th century. Um, and it's it's the case; it's still the case uh, that uh, that there's there's not a lot uh, uh, of, of there, there's not a lot of work being done in France uh, on early on on early Haitian culture uh, even uh, today. Um, there's no real attempts to sort of think about Vate uh, as an important figure because Vate's whole, you know, life work uh, is based on a kind of rejection of France uh, and, and ultimately even a rejection of French, the language he was sort of condemned uh, uh, to use. It's an interesting sort of footnote to history that Henri Christophe was planning uh, in the late 1810s, uh, had his regime not, you know, had his rule not been disruptive in 1820, uh, to transform the official language of his kingdom from French uh, into English as a decolonizing gesture, right? As a way of kind of ridding uh, uh, Haiti uh, of uh, the language of its colonial uh, sort of, um, quote unquote, founders. Yeah. So, uh, and the French just in general, you know, I'm generalizing here, but uh, anyone, you know, who has a sense of the field will... Uh, will know what I'm talking about. The French don't don't have uh, a particularly good relation to uh, to Haiti even uh, today. Uh, it sort of stands as the kind of uh, an object of what Paul Gilroy uh, calls post-colonial melancholia. You know, oh, you know, what would have happened if Haiti had not become independent? 
we would have retained our Pearl of the Antilles and, you know, uh, and it wouldn't have, you know, become the sort of problem state uh, that, that, that it now appears uh, to many to be. Uh, and all of that nostalgia uh, fails to take into account the fact that what Haiti is today uh, is shaped so much uh, by what was done uh, to Haiti, not just during the colonial period, uh, but primarily uh, after independence um, and after after Haitian independence was officially, if provisionally, recognized by France in 1825, they were forced to pay massive indemnities uh, uh, that uh, that that really, you know, ensure that that Haiti could never quote unquote develop fully uh, as uh, uh, as an independent country. Those indemnities uh, uh, amount to you know a huge amount uh, of 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 money. Uh, uh, that was paid from the 1820s on into uh, at least the 1940s, I, I think. Um, and that fact of Haiti as a debtor nation, uh, you know, severely affected uh, uh, Haitian, you know, quote unquote, development. Um, I think it's worth inserting here as a kind of a footnote uh, about Henri Christophe, uh, you know, and his differences from Pétion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from the perspective of, of some historians, uh, you know, what's to choose be- between them. They're both flawed, uh, Pétion, uh, uh, you know, clearly uh, a, a bit of a dictator, president for life. Uh, Christophe, you know, seems to be some sort of, at times benevolent, at other times sort of authoritarian and cruel, uh, despot. Um, and when he commits suicide in, in 1820, um, the country is reunified under uh, um, Pétion's successor, uh, Jean-Pierre uh, Boyer, uh, and, and the, the center of power in Haiti uh, shifts entirely to Port-au-Prince, entirely to the south. Uh, and, uh, and it's the inheritors of Pétion uh, who uh, agree, ultimately, to pay out these indemnities uh, to, uh, to France uh, in order to uh, secure uh, a kind of uh, uh, some kind of official uh, independence, um, and the one thing that can be said with certainty about Christophe, uh, without sort of lapsing into a kind of naive nostalgia, uh, is that he would never have uh, agreed to paying out uh, indemnities uh, in exchange for the recognition uh, of uh, of Haitian independence. He wanted uh, France to recognize Haitian independence. Uh, but time and time again, uh, he he simply refused to even entertain the possibility, a possibility that actually had been raised for the first time by Pétion uh, in 1814, and that eventually culminated uh, in 1825 uh, with this, this agreement to, 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 to transform Haiti into a, a debtor nation and to sort of officialize formal independence but also officialize a kind of new neo-colonial relation uh, between Haiti and its former colonizers, uh, France. So that's the one thing that can be said unequivocally, I think, about Christophe uh, and why his regime is is uh, is important, notwithstanding whatever whatever flaws there might have been to his character or, or to the, the the very idea of uh, of Haiti as a monarchy. Um, that uh, that he 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 was resilient. Uh, 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 in in terms of defending uh, Haitian sovereignty and, and recognize that payment of indemnities uh, would just uh, make a, uh, make make the idea of Haitian 
sovereignty uh, a, a kind of a, a joke. Can you comment on the significance of C.L.R. James' book, The Black Jacobins, for our contextualizing of Bate's life and times? So uh, C.L.R. James uh, wrote what's doubtless the, the most important influential history of the French of the Haitian Revolution, uh, published in the 20th century. Uh, his 1938, uh, The Black uh, Jacobins. Um, and it's a, uh, it tells a heroic, uh, epic story that's very much centered on Toussaint Louverture, uh, the rise of, of, of Toussaint Louverture to power. Uh, tells a heroic, epic story, uh, uh, almost a romantic, a romance, uh, in, in the critic uh, David Scott's words uh, about the Haitian Revolution, the happy ending of independence, um, so, so what's interesting about James's Black Jacobins uh, is he kind of wants to use um, Haitian independence as a kind of model, uh, a premonition of uh, of, uh, of African decolonization in the 20th century, which is very much looking forward to in, in 1938. Right, Haiti provides this kind of model of Black sovereignty uh, that's very useful uh, and uh, and sort of inspiriting to think about. Uh, uh, in relation to, you know, what Africa or what he thinks Africa will become uh, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, once it decolonizes uh, itself. Uh, but what's kind of interesting about uh, James's Black Jacobins uh, is that that he has nothing uh, to say there uh, about uh, what followed upon Haitian independence. Right? Uh, he's not really uh, interested in that book uh, uh, in all the stuff that happened uh, after 1st of January, 1804. Uh, doesn't really talk about Dessalines' uh, short-lived empire from 1804 to, to 1806. Doesn't talk about the assassination of Dessalines in October uh, 1806 and the division uh, of uh, independent Haiti into two countries, as we discussed uh, previously. Uh, doesn't talk about the problems uh, faced uh, by uh, Henri Christophe's kingdom uh, or Petion's uh, so-called uh, republic. Um, and one has to wonder sort of why. Okay, he's telling the story of the Haitian Revolution, uh, but he never gets around to to talking about uh, it's maybe less heroic, uh, maybe in his mind less epic-seeming uh, uh, aftermath, right? Which doesn't really correspond to uh, the... Uh, the dictates of the, the sort of the romance plot that, as David Scott has argued, uh, is sort of at work shaping the 1938 version uh, of uh, the Black Jacobins. And what's also interesting about the Black Jacobins, uh, as the critic Raphael Dalio has uh, pointed out, uh, is that it has nothing to say uh, about the U.S. occupation of Haiti uh, from 1915 to 1934. Uh, which generated a lot of interest uh, in Haiti uh, in um, across the Atlantic uh, in the 1920s and uh, the 1930s. It's as if uh, James simply doesn't want to uh, to, to talk about uh, neocolonialism, uh, to talk about uh, this aspect of the aftermath of Haitian independence, where Haiti in 1915 could be occupied by the United States. Uh, and it's uh, it's 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 sovereign nationhood uh, uh, basically um, erased uh, for uh, for twenty years. 
right? Because uh, that sort of ending uh, troubles uh, the kind of the triumphant uh, revolutionary message uh, of uh, the Black Jacobins. Uh, troubles it kind of in the same way that the, the the immediate aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, the division of Haiti into uh, into two states, um, the failure to to thrive, um, uh, et cetera, uh, troubles uh, troubles troubles James and and doesn't find a place uh, in the kind of the heroic epic uh, narrative uh, of the Black Jacobins. Now David Scott has made the argument that when James comes to revise or 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 create a second edition, a new edition of the Black Jacobins in 1963, uh, that uh, uh, that he's now more open to a kind of tragic understanding of Toussaint Louverture and of the Haitian Revolution uh, as a whole, uh, that perhaps the Haitian Revolution uh, uh, wasn't uh, the kind of the, uh, the, 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 wasn't just the heroic uh, epic enterprise that he made it out to be uh, in the Black Jacobins and that things could end badly. They certainly ended badly uh, for Toussaint Louverture uh, who died, uh, you know, in a French uh, uh, a French prison um, before Haiti actually achieved uh, independence? But notwithstanding this kind of uh, newly tragic awareness uh, of the the Haitian Revolution, which Scott argues is sort of at work shaping some of the revisions and additions to the '63 edition of the Black Jacobins. Uh, James still has nothing uh, to say about uh, the aftermath of Haitian uh, independence post-1804, uh, and nor does he, he kind of ever reflect on the, uh, uh, the U.S. occupation of, uh, of Haiti uh, in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, these still remain kind of uh, outside uh, his realm of vision, well, outside the realm of, of what he wanted to see uh, or represent uh, in the Black Jacobins, because he was surely aware uh, of these things, but they're kind of silenced uh, in the Black Jacobins, right? So to encounter Vate, to encounter the Kingdom of Haiti, uh, is also to encounter in some way uh, the limits uh, of uh, of a narrative uh, like uh, uh, like James's The Black Jacobins. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you describe... Yeah. Okay. Go on. Can you describe the course of events leading to Jean Jacques Dessalines' defeat of Napoleon's army? What were the short, medium, and long-term ramifications of this event for France and for Haiti? Okay. So we're kind of going backwards here. We've had the, um, uh, I, at, at some sense, uh, at some level, I should maybe have begun with a kind of a straightforward uh, uh, linear chronology of the Haitian Revolution in 1791. Uh, on through, you know, independence um, achieved, you know, finally at the Battle of Vertier in November 1803, Declaration of Independence, 1st of January 1804, uh, division of the country into two Hades, 1806-1807, uh, uh, and the fall of Christophe uh, in 1820, reunification uh, of Haiti after that, uh, uh, under the aegis of, the, of Pétion's successor, uh, Boyer. But, uh, uh, yeah. Here we are um, in 1802, 1803. Again, your pretty detailed description of 1814. Well, 1814 was going to become, uh, in the mind of, of people like Malouet and all the French ex-colonists who were just like drooling at the thought of uh, of recovering their lost Pearl of the Antilles, it was a kind of, it would have been a replaying of what actually happened uh, in 1802, right? 
when, you know, Toussaint Louverture between 1794, 1801, uh, has gradually established kind of complete control uh, over uh, the colony. Uh, 1801, he's in charge. Uh, he's not trying to turn it into a, a, an independent country, uh, although he probably should have. At least that's what Vate uh, uh, kind of argued uh, later, uh, is that that was Toussaint's sort of mistake. Um, you know, he was sort of moving kind of in an autonomous uh, direction, uh, but didn't, you know, sort of follow through uh, on that in the ways that that, that that would have been necessary if he was actually going to break with France uh, and his kind of straddling of uh, of sort of of, 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 of kind of being both free and French. Uh, the idea that you could be both free and French uh, rather than the idea uh, that that freedom required being not French, breaking with France, breaking with the colonial power. And right, that that was the, the sort of the limits of uh, of Toussaint's uh, kind of vision of the world. Anyways, 1802, um, uh, for a few months, uh, Toussaint is defeated. Uh, he's exiled to France. For a few months after that, uh, the other leaders of the re revolution, like Dessalines, like Pétion, like Christophe, uh, they've reconciled with the French, uh, if only for strategic reasons. Uh, and they're even engaged in putting down ongoing resistance uh, from uh, formerly enslaved peoples, Maroon leaders, uh, uh, Etc. However, by the fall of 1802, uh, pretty much all of the uh, the indigenous military leaders, led by the Dessalines, uh, uh, break with the French uh, and commit finally to a sort of all-out war uh, against uh, uh, France. Uh, because by this time, uh, it had become clear to everyone that the French were there uh, to not just to reimpose their authority to take it away from Toussaint Louverture, uh, but to reimpose uh, slavery to reestablish. Uh, the colonial system. Um, I use the word indigenous there, indigenous military leaders like uh, uh, like Dessalines, Pétion. Um, that's an interesting word uh, in this context. At some point in 1803, the, the insurgent army resisting French rule started referring to itself as l'armée indigène, the indigenous army. Uh, and they were modeling themselves specifically after native insurgencies uh, uh, in Latin America. Uh, the word indigène, indigenous, was very useful at the time in terms of creating a unity uh, uh, between all uh, Haitian-born peoples or Saint-Domingue-born peoples uh, who were resisting French rule, whether they were uh, uh, Black uh, or uh, of mixed uh, origins, right? Um, the tensions between uh, the slaves or the formerly enslaved, on the one hand, uh, and the so-called gens de couleur libre, uh, often of mixed descent, uh, people who had been free uh, at the time of the, uh, uh, the when the Haitian Revolution uh, uh, began, and some of whom had even been uh, slave owners, this tension uh, had existed uh, for a long time, and it helped the French sort of perpetuate their rule uh, in, in Saint-Domingue. But finally, there was a kind of a unified front, this indigenous army, uh, and uh, over the course of the next year, from the fall of 1802, fall of 1803, uh, the French were gradually uh, sort of pushed back. Uh, and eventually, November 18th, 1803, the famous Battle of Vertier, the final battle, uh, the French are defeated. Uh, they capitulate. Um, and uh, a provisional declaration of independence is made uh, at the end of uh, at the end of November 1803 to be followed by the official declaration 
uh, of the independence on the 1st of January, 1804. Now, it's very interesting in relation to Vate uh, that, um, you know, that, that he only went over to the indigenous side, uh, as it were, very late in the game. Uh, at some point uh, after the 19th of August, 1803, uh, which is the date of uh, of the last letter that we have uh, uh, from his uh, uh, white father uh, to, uh, to 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 their French relations uh, in uh, Normandy. Uh, so it's interesting in terms of uh, our knowledge of uh, Vate has grown quite a bit. Uh, um, even since the uh, uh, even since the publication of my uh, uh, translation of Colonial System Unveiled, and we might want to say a few words uh, about uh, uh, about some of the new knowledge about Vate that has surfaced uh, since the publication uh, of uh, of Colonial System Unveiled. But just to finish the story of 1802, 1803, uh, 1804, um, uh, Dessaline and uh, Dessaline's Indigenous Army uh, win. And uh, there you have it, uh, uh, Haitian independence. So um, what were the ramifications of this event for France and for Haiti? That's kind of a huge question. I'm, I'm not, not really sure quite how I could, uh, how I could begin uh, to uh, answer it. Um, but uh, maybe one thing that I could say uh, is that uh, it's not as final, for one thing, uh, as it seems to be. Uh, as Deborah Jensen, for one, has pointed out, uh, the French never left Saint-Domingue, or they didn't leave it in, in 1803. Uh, uh, they were still in control of the eastern part of the, the island, uh, present-day uh, Dominican Republic, uh, which was at the time, you know, part of, uh, uh, part of Haiti, uh, or had been part of colonial Saint-Domingue. Uh, so they remained there as a kind of threatening uh, 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 presence, uh, and they didn't leave until 18. 09. Um, and I, I guess that uh, in terms of the ramifications uh, for France, uh, once they got over, well, they never got over their, their post-colonial melancholia at the loss uh, of the Pearl of the Antilles, but eventually they sort of resigned themselves uh, to, uh, to formal Haitian independence, uh, which they began to see. And Vate was very aware uh, of how this worked. They began to see that, 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 that nations uh, especially French-speaking nations uh, uh, could be independent uh, and still be kind of caught, trapped uh, in a kind of neo-colonial relation, both economically and uh, culturally, uh, right? So the idea that, uh, well, Haiti can have its independence, uh, but, you know, they're in debt to us. Uh, we've sort of got them, you know, uh, uh, got them by the, you know, in terms of the, their economy, uh, we've got control uh, of a large portion of that, and and also in terms of the the, the French language, uh, uh, you know, we've we've got them in control. Uh, we control them through through that as well, right? Because uh, now France can sort of seem to be this this place of culture, no longer a kind of place of of violent domination and enslavement, uh, but a, a sort of a civilizing source of inspiration uh, for Haitians who can sort of develop along the right lines. Uh, by maintaining a kind of allegiance, a cultural allegiance, an intellectual allegiance uh, to their uh, their former colonial uh, masters, right? So neocolonialism, you know, works not just economically but uh, culturally 
Uh, and so for the Haitian elite, um, you know, there was uh, not for, for Vate and, and uh, uh, but uh, for the Haitian elite that 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 emerged in the aftermath of uh, the disappearance of the Kingdom of Haiti in 1820, uh, France, you know, sort of resumed its its kind of control, its its power as a sort of a cultural force uh, that one could model oneself after. At the same time, basking in the satisfaction of a kind of uh, a formal independence. Right. What are the other significant writings by Vate other than the colonial system unveiled? Can you describe their themes and contents? What is their relevance for Haitian and Caribbean intellectual history? Yeah, well, I think um, it, it, in broad strokes, uh, the answer to those questions uh, is the same as, as the answer would be if, if mm-hmm. you asked them of colonial system unveiled. But it's important to have a sense of, of Vate's oeuvre, his, uh, uh, his, his work that, 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 that he published between 1814 uh, and 1820, uh, when Shortly after the suicide of, of Henri Christophe, it's it's worth remembering, uh, Vate uh, was uh, uh, was brutally put to death um, about a week after, week to ten days after uh, Henri Christophe uh, committed suicide, put to death uh, by Christophe's enemies. Uh, he was a, he was a man who was like seen as just too complicit uh, in Christophe's uh, rule. Uh, to be allowed to 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 sort of survive, right? So it's important to remember that Vate's life was cut short brutally at the age of thirty nine uh, in eighteen twenty. Uh, yeah. So between eighteen fourteen and uh, eighteen twenty, though, uh, he published no fewer than eleven books uh, and/or uh, pamphlets, uh, and uh, along with a lot of articles, for instance, that would be published in the. Uh, uh, the the regime the the, the kingdom's uh, official newspaper the Gazette Royale. Um, in my edition, I distinguish for heuristic purposes between major and minor works. Uh, this is an admittedly problematic distinction based on a number of factors, including you know just like number of pages, uh, but also in terms of global circulation and global influence. So along with colonial system unveil which was never translated into uh, English at the time. Uh, there are three other, uh, what I would see as major works. Uh, from 1816, um, a work translated as Reflections on the Blacks and Whites, uh, which is uh, a sort of follow-up to Colonial System Unveiled, uh, and it features uh, uh, you know, further elaborations of the affirmation of Black identity, African origins of uh, civilization, um, as well as kind of robust refutations of uh, colonial uh, discourse, all of which make it uh, often read like a, as I as I put it, uh, a negritude manifesto uh, avant la lettre. And then in eighteen seventeen, uh, there's a, a lengthy tome translated as political remarks on some French works and newspapers concerning Haiti, uh, which is a, a kind of a very detailed uh, analysis and critique. Uh, of how colonial discourse, specifically French discourse, works in terms of uh, representing uh, independent Haiti. Uh, it's fascinating in terms of uh, the way in which it anticipates, you know, uh, contemporary post-colonial insights into the epistemic violence uh, that generates uh, uh, Western representations uh, uh, of the other. And finally, uh, 1819, uh, uh, essay on the causes of the revolution and civil wars of Haiti, which Vate himself characterizes as the first attempt to produce a general history of Haiti 
written by a native, an antigen uh, of uh, uh, the country. So kind of history, uh, both, you know, from below, but, but, but also from the other, from the other side, trying to sort of reverse the, the epistemic violence and the, the, the power and the sway uh, of white uh, discourse, of, of white history, uh, by telling another sort uh, of, uh, uh, of history, black history, indeed. What can contemporary human rights documentation and reporting learn from the colonial system unveiled? What, if anything, are documentation organizations, small and large, whether local in nature or transnational, like Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch, doing wrong that could be improved by learning from the example of Vate's report? Yeah, and that's a, a question that um, I kind of uh, uh, approach it a little bit uh, at the end of the uh, the essay of mine that's included in this collection, mm-hmm. uh, which is called um, Memories of Development. What's the subtitle? Uh, Le système colonial dévoilé and the performance of uh, literacy. Um, and uh, that article, kind of for the most part, is is doing a very uh, close reading of Colonial System Unveiled, uh, which really attempts to, to draw out its formal complexity. Uh, and I'm reading it as uh, a sort of a, a kind of an allegory of reading, uh, a kind of, a, uh, in some ways, a Bildungsroman, a, a novel uh, of, of development uh, through which Vate is, is kind of, you know, showing us how he's he's learning, how he's learned and how he's still learning how to use um, textual sources uh, properly, textual sources properly. Um, it's a bit of a complicated argument. Anyways, uh, at the end of that argument, uh, I complicated even further by saying my reading of, uh, of Colonial System Unveiled to this point, uh, has not really addressed the elephant in the room, right? That uh, that uh, that it's a work that's written kind of at the behest uh, of uh, you know King Christophe, right? Uh, and that it's a work that has a kind of uh, uh, a, a role to play, a an official role to play uh, in in sort of helping uh, the, the the Christophian uh, regime uh, make its claims for uh, for independence. Uh, the recognition of independence by Britain, by by other uh, countries such as uh, Russia or uh, Germany, right? In other words, uh, um, the first part of my interpretation just sort of treats the text as something that's authored by an individual. Uh, and then at the end, I kind of say, well, what happens if we sort of think about what I call its, its sort of scribal dimension, you know, where Vate is sort of writing for Christophe, he's writing, you know, to kind of achieve some sort of... Uh, uh, some sort of political end uh, that will, you know, support, uh, you know, Haitian independence. Um, and that gets me into a kind of uh, discussion of uh, the ways in which uh, Vate's texts, not just this, but but all of his texts, uh, especially this one, can kind of be considered as what the uh, anthropologist Erica Capel James, uh, who's worked on uh, Haiti, a contemporary Haiti, uh, what she calls the trauma portfolio, uh, quote, the aggregate of paraphernalia compiled to document and authenticate the experience of individual family or collective uh, sufferers. So what happens if we read this uh, in James's words as a, as a trauma portfolio? Um, and trauma portfolios are absolutely essential uh, in today's world, 
uh, for uh, humanitarian action, right? Uh, a case has to be made uh, for and by the sufferers or the victims or the victims, uh, as James uh, uh, refers to them using the, the Creole uh, the Creole word, right? Um, and uh, what does it mean to read a colonial system unveiled not as a work of, you know, a kind of individual achievement or even a work of capital L literature, uh, but as a trauma portfolio, as a as a document that's making a kind of humanitarian case uh, for uh, the, uh, the 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 alleviation of uh, of, of various forms of, of suffering uh, that come, for instance, with Haiti's uh, abject positioning in the world order, you know, as a kind of uh, unrecognized state uh, in 1814. So I think that that reading Vate's colonial system unveiled also gets us thinking usefully about humanitarian discourse and humanitarian reason uh, uh, in the present. Uh, and certainly what what does one learn from the example of, of Vate, Vate's report and, and Christoph's kingdom uh, in relation to Haiti and humanitarianism? Uh, I, I think that there's a very basic answer uh, which is that you know uh, Haiti, Haiti for the Haitians, uh, right? And um, even today, uh, it's just extraordinary uh, how quickly uh, uh, resolutions to you know the ongoing uh, crises uh, in in Haiti uh, are, are are sort of thought to to be resolvable only by uh, you know humanitarian intervention, the intervention of others of the UN, uh, but also of that sort of unholy trinity uh, of uh, neo-colonial powers, the US, France, and Canada uh, in relation to uh, uh, in relation to Haiti. Um, and uh, the answer, you know, certainly doesn't, uh, it's not for me to say where the answer lies, uh, but it certainly doesn't lie, uh, you know, uh, in those, uh, in sort of the imposition of uh, external, uh, uh, external rule. <laughs> Uh, be it however so ostensibly benevolent or or humanitarian, uh, it lies in you know assertions and reassertions uh, of the sort of Haitian sovereignty uh, uh, that is envisioned uh, and uh, realized in part uh, in the works of Vate uh, and in post-independence uh, post-independence Haiti. So to read Vate is hopefully uh, to kind of get a sense of of just how unimportant we are uh, in relation to. Uh, whatever solutions uh, uh, are eventually going to uh, are going to happen in 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 Haiti, where we is defined as you know um, those who benefit, as it were, from the colonial system, uh, right? rather than those who are uh, uh, structurally um, opposed to it. There's an individual alluded to often in colonial system unveiled named Cocherel. There's a quotation about him. Um, on page 114, where Vate writes as follows, Cocherel, settler, resident of the plains of Gonaive, notorious for the massacre of Blacks that he carried out in the early days of the revolution, had already made a reputation for himself during the colonial regime through his acts of cruelty. He would have his subjects flogged to death, his mulatto coach driver Charles, was the particular object of his cruelty. After having had him struck on the buttocks with a hundred lashes, he forced the bleeding man to mount on his horse and drive his carriage. Because this poor fellow was a musician, on another such occasion, after having had him thrashed, he jokingly forced him to play the violin, 
as punishment, so he said, for having danced without the accompaniment of that instrument. Can you expand on this passage? And can you tell us more about Kosharel in the context of this passage? Okay, yes. Um, so here we're actually getting into the text it, it, itself. Um, and I should say just a word about the structure of the colonial system unveiled. Uh, it has a first chapter and a second chapter. Uh, the first chapter sort of covers the the kind of the span, you know, the, the beginnings of uh, colonization of the, the Caribbean, uh, eradication of the uh, in indigenous population, um, enslavement uh, as a kind of alternative to uh, uh, or sort of as a way of, of kind of growing the, uh, the sugar plantation economy. Uh, he talks about the slave trade uh, and he talks about Africa. Uh, and how, uh, um, you know, the, the travels of uh, Mungo Park, for instance, uh, you know, prove that Africa is a place uh, of civilization uh, and, uh, uh, and potentially amenable to, to even more uh, civilization, uh, putting paid to, you know, kind of justifications of slavery. So then in the second uh, uh, chapter, the lengthier chapter, and the chapter which really has attracted the most critical attention, um, he goes on to talk about slavery on the ground in Saint-Domingue. Uh, and that's where, uh, in the opening half of that second chapter, that the most powerful, innovative, um, unusual uh, uh, part of the, uh, of the book is. Uh, after some prefatory uh, remarks about the need to you know, kind of create a, a history from below or a history from the other side to kind of go beyond uh, what 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 white writers have said uh, about colonial Saint Domingue? Uh, he launches into uh, a stunning inventory uh, of the individual of the crimes of individual settlers, uh, and this goes on for twenty pages. Uh, and he just lists one settler after uh, another and details uh, uh, some of their crimes, crimes that, for the most part, aren't to be found uh, in books, right? And that have been. Uh, thus hidden away from uh, uh, posterity, but that are available to him uh, through uh, mostly through uh, oral testimony uh, of the victims or of relations of uh, the victims uh, and through what he calls common knowledge, uh, right? Uh, and so he puts this common knowledge that comes from, you know, sort of oral transmission uh, down in writing uh, and this inventory of well over 100, uh, uh, you know, French criminals, um, crimes against humanity, uh, is uh, is just a stunning document. It's stunning for any number of reasons, uh, for the way in which uh, it kind of actively refuses to bask in the sort of uh, uh, sentimental rhetoric uh, uh, that uh, uh, that he kind of accesses a little bit in the first chapter. Um, and to just sort of provide a kind of straightforward uh, reportage uh, of the most sort of harrowing, uh, violent uh, uh, episodes that exemplify not individual planter brutality or settler brutality, uh, but the very system uh, that he's critiquing, right? And, and so uh, Cocherelle is just, you know, one among many, right, who's, uh, uh, who's, uh, who's part of this uh, inventory, um, and you happened to select this passage as one that we might possibly talk about in the podcast. Uh, and there was Cocherelle right at the beginning uh, of the of the passage. And I sort of thought to myself about, you know, uh, Cocherelle got me thinking. It's like, 
well, I, you know, most of these, 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 these white settlers, uh, you know, in this list of hundred, well over a hundred, uh, uh, you know, kind of perpetrators, uh, um, uh, are, you know, names you don't recognize, um, that, you know, names that you would be hard pressed, even with the most thorough, uh, kind of archival research, uh, to salvage uh, any information, uh, any substantive information uh, about that doesn't mean they didn't exist. Uh, it just means that that they they didn't make an impression uh, 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 in history in the historical archive. Now there are a few uh, uh, who um, who did, uh, and I footnote a few of them, but I didn't footnote Kosher out. Uh, right. Um, so let's see here. Okay, as I said. It would have been a thankless and even counterproductive task to attempt to footnote all the names of the former colonists listed in this inventory, most of whom only live on uh, because they have been included in this inventory. For obvious logistical reasons, I footnoted only the most recognizable settler colonist whose brutality or ideological commitment to slavery uh, has earned them a lasting place in transatlantic print culture. So I had footnotes for a few of them, like Jean-Baptiste Larchevêque Thibault, Augustin Jean Brûlé, uh, Jean-Baptiste de Carradeux, uh, and, and Venot de Charmini. I think I footnoted four of them. Uh, I could have footnoted Cocherel because he's as well-known uh, a settler colonist uh, as, uh, as these four uh, that I just uh, uh, mentioned. He was a very influential uh, figure in the opening years of the French Revolution, 1789-90, arguing uh, uh, the case for uh, white settler uh, uh, rights for 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 votes uh, in the national uh, assembly, uh, votes for the white population of San Saint Domingue, obviously not the mixed race population, much less uh, the uh, the enslaved. Uh, he published a number of of of, of books that uh, uh, pamphlets uh, that received a relatively wide uh, transatlantic uh, uh, reception. Uh, so anti 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 mixed race uh, pro slavery or anti Jean de couleur libre uh, pro slavery um, uh, and there's a and, and and there are traces of him historically uh, um, that, that take us all the way you know uh, past the restoration 1815 uh, you know he took up an official position uh, with uh, under Louis the um, right so uh, and he was a marquis. Uh, Nicolas uh, de Cocherel, Marquis uh, de Cocherel. And interestingly, uh, so I started thinking about him uh, and uh, why didn't I footnote him? Uh, I should have, maybe uh, there should be a footnote there. Um, but I, I, I looked up this um, this description uh, of, of, of Vates because one of the things that strikes you about the about the description of Cocherel is that I didn't know any, any of this about Cocherel, uh, right? Um, uh, notorious for the massacre of blacks that he carried out in the early days of the revolution. Uh, as far as I know, there's not a trace uh, of this massacre of blacks that he carried out in the early days uh, of the revolution. Again, this is not to say it didn't happen. I am certain it happened, uh, but just that the white historical archive uh, it doesn't produce any knowledge uh, of it uh, for us. Uh, uh, a reputation for himself uh, uh, in in, in pre-revolutionary days uh, through his acts of cruelty. Again, the historical record uh, contains uh, none of this, um, much less the specific details uh, about his quote-unquote mulatto coach driver, uh, Charles, uh, the particular object 
uh, of his cruelty, uh, this kind of uh, very resonant uh, image uh, of uh, forcing the bleeding man to mount on his horse and drive his carriage, uh, uh, playing the, the, the joke, quote unquote, uh, on him of making him play the violin uh, as punishment for having danced without the accompaniment of that uh, instrument uh, after he'd been thrashed, right? The dancing produced by uh, the thrashing. None of this is in the historical record, right? Um, so uh, that's part of the empirical knowledge uh, that Vate's text provides us uh, uh, with, uh, and it allows us to think differently uh, about uh, Koshrel, to see him uh, not as some kind of, you know, just in the abstract pro-slavery uh, fellow, but who nonetheless was very erudite and 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 produced uh, kind of semi-interesting uh, pamphlets that had a semi you know large reception across the transatlantic uh, uh, the transatlantic world. Uh, but to see him in relation to these these actions, actions witnessed uh, presumably uh, by other uh, subaltern uh, uh, subjects, right? So here we have history from below. Uh, another history uh, uh, that 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 the white archive uh, simply hasn't recorded. Uh, that, that 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 that's just not there. Right now, from the perspective of certain straight historians uh, uh, in need of, of better evidence, uh, uh, this might seem inadequate. Uh, right? It might seem like, uh, well, what's the basis for all this? You know, where is, in the words of uh, uh, one nineteenth-century reader of this text, where's the collateral evidence? Uh, uh, for uh, for this, uh, and you know, you can see how that makes sense—the desire for you know hard evidence. Uh, but you can also see the condescension, right? Uh, the condescension uh, of, of 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 writing, for one, uh, in relation uh, to, uh, to orality, uh, to the oral transmission uh, of, of, of 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 stories. I hesitate to call them stories, but uh, of of events uh, uh, like. This right, so that's part of what uh, what Vate does uh, in his inventory. That's that's hugely important uh, for thinking about the relation between uh, oral forms of uh, of knowledge transmission versus uh, um, written forms of uh, of knowledge transmission. And there's even another point to be made about Cochrane, which I, I think is quite uh, interesting. Um, it's that uh, is that Vate's whole purpose here is to sort of indict these individuals. Almost, and, and this is a kind of an idea that uh, Marlena Doubt uh, uh, develops in, in relation to this inventory, uh, almost as if he was like putting them in a, in, a, in a court of law and just accusing them of of of, of these uh, uh, of these crimes. Um, and the name of Kosherel uh, actually uh, fifty years after the fact, uh, and this whole description of Vates uh, gets uh, reiterated, uh, uh, repurposed. Uh, in an article that I, I just came across a, a couple of days ago when I was uh, I was preparing for this podcast, uh, in an article published in the Atlantic Monthly uh, in 1863 called "The Horrors uh, of San Domingo," uh, and um, and I'll just read it to you. Sure, it's a, a kind of unacknowledged quote from from Vate, uh, um, the author uh, who's sort of arguing, among other things, for the desirability of using black soldiers. Uh, in the U.S. in the U.S. Army uh, to you know help hasten the defeat of the Confederates uh, takes this passage uh, and uh, and and kind of uh, appropriates it. It doesn't cite Vate, uh, but it's clear from this and many other examples uh, in in the article 
that he's taken it from Vate. Koshrael, a planter of Gonaive, had a slave who played upon the violin. After terrible floggings, he would compel this man to play as a punishment for having danced without music. He found it piquant to watch the contest of pain and sorrow with the native love of melody. Uh, and that last sentence, of course, is, is just the, the author's uh, uh, addition there, sort of a fantastical addition to the evidence uh, presented by uh, Vate uh, in Colonial System Unveiled. So this really speaks to the reception of Colonial System Unveiled, the way it was a text that 50 years later was still being read, still being uh, cited uh, as evidence of sort of the atrocities uh, of, uh, of, uh, of settler colonialism uh, in uh, Saint-Domingue, um, and, uh, and the way in which uh, Cocherelle's name, uh, uh, you know, wasn't, uh, didn't survive uh, in some kind of sort of uh, pristine way that, uh, that exempted him uh, from the violence of the colonial system, but that Vathe's act of, of, uh, of, of testimony, um, um, the inscription of Cocherelle's name uh, in, uh, in colonial system unveiled, uh, was able to sort of uh, provide, you know, from an anti-colonial perspective, the right sort of posterity uh, for somebody like Cochrane. And one final little detail that I think is fascinating, and again, this, I'm just digressing here, but this is all new stuff for me. Um, Cochrane uh, is is still a, a place name uh, in Haiti. Uh, if you if you look it up, it's 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 on the outskirts of uh, Gonaïve, um, and there's still that name Cochrane uh, to sort of mark the spot, uh, you know, where the marquee. Uh, the Cochrane's plantation, the plantations were. Um, and uh, that name hasn't yet been sort of eradicated, uh, um, nor should it be really, because it just is the, provides you with a sort of sense of the, the memory of the land, right? The, a land that was, uh, you know, colonized by people like uh, uh, Cochrane, who, uh, who, who thought nothing of massacring uh, uh, their uh, Blacks uh, and uh, perpetrating acts of cruelty. Uh, on their slaves, right? So it's important that that, that the kind of, I mean, I think it's interesting that the memory of Cochrane is still sort of inscribed on the map uh, there as that which, you know, is, is there as kind of haunting presence, uh, right? This book was published in 2014 and it's now 2023. How has this book been received in the past nine years? Has anything new been learned about Vate and other scholarship? Can you comment on how you look back at this book nine years later? That's a that's a, a great a great question, and um, uh, certainly in terms of uh, of new information about the the Baron de Vate, um, there has been new information, and it came out actually weeks, months at most uh, after the publication of my translation and critical edition. So if there were ever a second edition of this uh, of this this book, uh, that information would have to be uh, included. Uh, it uh, it's contained uh, in a book in French written by a kind of genealogist slash historian uh, by the name of uh, uh, Laurent Cavigny, uh, who is a distant relative of the of, of the Vates and who had access to um, uh, the Vate family archive, uh, which contains it would appear. Um, a, a whole cache uh, of uh, letters uh, dating from the 1760s all the way up to the 1830s, uh, most of them exchanged between members of the Vate family in Saint-Domingue uh, on the one hand and on the other side of the Atlantic 
in France and specifically uh, in Normandy, where the, the Vate family uh, originated uh, from. And so most of these letters are like letters from Vate's father, white father, uh, who, um, who married a, uh, a free woman of color by the name of uh, uh, Elizabeth, um, um, and uh, who managed to sort of uh, use that, that marriage as a, as a kind of a way to uh, uh, to getting in with uh, Elizabeth's illegitimate father, uh, Vate's grandfather, a guy called Dumas, uh, who owned a lot of plantations. Um, and so the, the the archival correspondence that's uh, that's um, reproduced in Gavis Le Baron de Vate uh, gives you a great sense of, of how the, the Vate coffee plantations mostly uh, sort of uh, were built up over the course of the 1770s and 1780s. Uh, it confirms some of the biographical information that we already had uh, had knew that you know Vate was born in 1781, um, and uh, uh, and gives you a lot of information uh, about uh, about both the, the Vate family and the uh, neighbors uh, in the parish uh, of Marmalade, uh, where, uh, where where Vate uh, grew up, as well as about uh, the, the the Vate family. Uh, in Normandy, so it's tremendously interesting in, ter- in terms of uh, family uh, kinship, ne- in terms of sort of Atlantic kinship uh, networks, um, and there is also some, you know, uh, new information uh, about Vate uh, that uh, sort of is absolutely vital in terms of understanding his relation to France. So some people in the 19th century, just based on Vate's writing. Uh, thought that he might have been like uh, an ex-slave because there are times when Vate's self-presentation in some of his books really makes it seem uh, as, uh, as 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 if he were a member of the uh, uh, the enslaved. Uh, and there was also kind of an idea that that that, that somehow he might have been born in 1735 uh, um, and not rather than 1781. So there was a lot of misinformation uh, out there about Vate, and some of it had been resolved uh, by the time um, I put out the translation critical edition of Colonial System Unveiled. Uh, but there was other information that, you know, was sort of newly surfaced and um, uh, it was being posited um, by one of my collaborators that possibly Vate had spent time uh, in uh, in France in the 1790s. And, and not just that, but that he had, uh, you know, produced a whole bunch of neoclassical poetry uh, and published it under the name of Pompey Valentin Vate. Uh, which is the name that Vate was always known as, known by, uh, in the 19th century, uh, from 1839 onward. Uh, the idea was that the Baron de Vate's actual name was Pompey Valentin Vate, um, as the discovery of his baptismal certificate uh, by Marlene Doubt, um, circa 2010, uh, showed uh, his actual name was Jean-Louis, uh, not Pompey Valentin uh, at all. However, there were these poems out there by Pompey Valentin that day, uh, and it was being positive that maybe, you know, maybe he had actually written poetry uh, while he was in, in France. So Kevy's, uh, uh, you know, exploration of the family archive uh, proves, you know, conclusively uh, two things uh, in relation to Vate's formation. Uh, first, that he was indeed in France uh, from 1791 to 17. Uh, 96 for five years, five formative years, um, uh, from the age of 10 to the age of 15. Uh, and we didn't know that. I didn't know that. Nobody knew it, uh, except for Kevi. 
who was keeping it a closely guarded secret, I can tell you, um, uh, uh, you know, at the time of the publication of Colonial System Unveiled. Uh, so there's that. And then uh, there's, you know, conclusive evidence as well that Vate returned to Saint-Domingue in 1796 and that he couldn't possibly have written uh, this poetry. Uh, and that, of course, uh, this Pompe Valentin Vate uh, who published poetry in the late late 1790s uh, and, and, and also some stuff uh, in the, the, the subsequent decade uh, was some cousin uh, of, uh, of, of Arvates, right? So, um, you know, when you read uh, my 2014 uh, introduction to, uh, to Vate, specifically the biographical sketch that's provided there, um, you know, you'll see that I'm kind of like trying to, to hedge my bets as to, you know, what exactly Vate was doing in the 1790s. Uh, and we now have a much better idea of that, just as we have a much better idea uh, of, of, of his relations, uh, his good relations uh, with his white father, uh, which lasted all the way up uh, until uh, the, uh, the late summer of, of 1803. Um, we don't know when exactly his father died, but probably uh, died uh, in late August 1803, uh, and that may have been part of what freed Bate up to kind of go over to the other side uh, and uh, to to sort of transform himself uh, into a kind of a self-styled autodidact uh, who, uh, as far as, as his written works uh, suggest, uh, was never in France. Uh, so there's a little bit of, of, uh, of, of the performance of the self uh, self-fashioning uh, in Vate's, uh, uh, Vate's work, which was necessitated by this crossing over uh, from, uh, uh, the, 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 from the French side, but also from the, the, the kind of the, the, the Jean de Couleur uh, side uh, to uh, the Haitian side, uh, but also to the Black side. Um, and Kevy's uh, uh, book certainly gives us uh, um, a, a lot of new information to 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 mull over. So for sure, that would be one change. Uh, and I think that uh, that I'd also probably uh, uh, kind of, uh, it's not that my ideas have, uh, have changed about Bate, but maybe that I have, uh, I had too many of them. Uh, and certainly when you read that, uh, uh, that edition today, or when I read it, uh, I think, well, what would it have been uh, if, uh, if um, without the supplementary essays uh, by other academics, uh, including myself, uh, about Vate and with a much more curtailed um, introduction uh, and just sort of let the text uh, stand on its own a little bit more uh, than I did um, uh, in my edition, which uh, features like a lot of introductory material authored by me, along with the supplementary essays. And then, but what I think is important and would never kind of, should never disappear, a, a really kind of comprehensive uh, uh, footnote apparatus uh, uh, to the text itself uh, that clarifies uh, uh, not just a lot of the references in, in Vate's text, but also, you know, where he's sort of intertextually playing off of, uh, or even, you know, borrowing, or even, you know, you might say plagiarizing at points, uh, uh, texts, other texts that, 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 that he read, but didn't acknowledge uh, in colonial system unveiled. As, yeah. as we bring our dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your attention has gone since completing this book. Can you tell us about your subsequent research and your current projects? 
Yeah, well, my attention hasn't really gone, gone anywhere uh, in a couple of senses. Um, I haven't like been moving very quickly uh, with my research over the, the past decade uh, and also um, hasn't moved in the sense that I'm still very much you know, focused on early Haitian literature uh, and the emergence of it. Um, for a long time now, I've been uh, working on a book called, um, uh, what's going to be called, if it ever comes out, uh, Phoenix Rising. Uh, race, literacy, uh, and the emergence of early Haitian uh, literature. Um, and there'll be a, a chapter on on, on Bate, uh, which is, you know, quite closely, sticks pretty closely to the, uh, the supplementary essay um, at the end of uh, my uh, 2014 translation uh, critical edition. Uh, but uh, but uh, chapters on other Haitian writers, notably uh, Juste Chanlat, uh, who was the other sort of best known uh, writer in in in, uh, uh, in Christoph's uh, kingdom, uh, along with a kind of uh, a sort of genealogical examination uh, of writings from the 1790s by uh, certain um, Jean de Couleur, free people of uh, color, uh, uh, that uh, that I argue uh, sort of play a kind of uh, important formative role uh, in terms of the. Uh, post-independence emergence uh, of uh, of Haitian literature. So it's uh, it's still a long way from being finished, but I've been working on it for ages. Uh, and uh, and I thank you for uh, uh, for letting me revisit uh, uh, my 2014 uh, book on on by <laughs> Vate uh, because it's uh, been really helpful in terms of getting the creative. Uh, juices uh, uh, going again in relation to Vate, and um, yeah, so thanks for that. And hopefully, you found uh, you found our session uh, of some uh, of some interest, and hopefully, it will generate a few more readers uh, for uh, uh, a nine-year-old, uh, but nonetheless timeless book. <laughs> Thank you. I could not be more thankful. It was my absolute humble honor to have spoken to you today and engage with this very, very, very important book. Thanks. To our listeners, I'm your host today, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books and Caribbean Studies podcast. I've been in dialogue with Chris Bonji. He is full professor in the Department of English at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. We have been discussing his book, The Colonial Unsystem. The Colonial System Unveiled by Baron de Vate, which he has edited and translated. It has been published by Liverpool University Press 2014. Thank you.